I am a first year internal medicine resident, finishing my intern year at the Brigham. This is actually my last day of intern year. My name is Rachel. I am my third year of general surgery resident. I imagine most residents at the end of their second year would say that they do feel burnt out. I think it's uh, on a minute by minute basis. I do feel burned out, but not, not as much as when I kind of leave the hospital and I have a little time to decompress. I tend to just feel like so worn down and burned out. Welcome back to The House, the NEJM's podcast for and about residents. I'm Lisa Rosenbaum, attending in cardiology at Brigham and Women's Hospital and a national correspondent for the New England Journal. And I'm Dan Weisberg, internal medicine resident at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And we're devoting this podcast to burnout. It's really an open secret. You know, everybody knows about it. People talk about it in private, but it, it's not something that is, is discussed often enough in, in public. That's Douglas Mata, who authored a systematic review and meta-analysis last year published in JAMA that really cast the issue of resident depression into the public light. Dr. Mata is actually a resident himself in the Department of Pathology at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. It's something I've been interested in for a long time, since medical school, basically. When I started medical school, I was at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And, you know, it was a great place to train, uh, but it was a very high-pressure place. And unfortunately, during medical school, one of the students in the year above me committed suicide. And he wasn't a close friend of mine, but it nonetheless affected pretty much everyone that was then a student. And so that was kind of my first taste of it. And then um, I was very good friends with a friend of the individual who killed himself. And he was just devastated and ended up having to take a year off and went through his own period of depression. And then at another point, a couple of years later, and, and just before I myself had started residency, one of my roommates, who was also a physician, committed suicide. And that really affected me. And I asked myself, what could I have done differently to try to help him? I went through a period of not feeling so great, obviously, after that occurred. And that's really what kind of spurred me to start doing the research. As we started learning more about burnout and depression, we realized we were dealing with a spectrum, from the mundane annoyances of working in the hospital on one extreme and suicide on the other. It's hard to know where burnout and depression do and don't overlap. But when we are talking about the specific challenges of training and working as a physician, we have to seek out these areas of overlap. I think that's an important question because on the one hand, burnout and depression are two different entities that we've conceptualized differently over the past decades in our study of these phenomena. Burnout, generally speaking, has three major kind of themes that define it. One is feeling of exhaustion, tiredness, fatigue. Another is having feelings of cynicism. And then another is feeling that you're inefficient at work. And that's generally referred to as occupational burnout. Depression, on the other hand, you know, has those nine symptoms that we all learned in medical school. And depression may not necessarily be secondary to something, but burnout is generally conceptualized as being secondary to your work environment. From my understanding of the current literature is that there's actually a lot of overlap between burnout and depression, and actually many individuals who screen positive for depression also score high on the Maslick burnout inventory. And so there's some suggestion that 
burnout actually could be considered a subtype of depression, although I should say that it's not currently in the DSM-5 as an accepted disorder per se, although there is an ICD-10 code for burnout. What we've proposed, or the way we think about what some of the drivers of distress and burnout are, we've thought about this in terms of what we call five drivers. That was Colin West, who studies burnout. I'm a general internist at Mayo and a professor of medicine, medical education, and biostatistics. As Dr. West takes us through these drivers of burnout, you'll hear the voices of interns describing their experiences on the wards. The first one is work effort, and so the number of work hours, how stressful or intense that work is. That's shifted a little bit with duty hour requirements, but one of the hidden trade-offs there is that the workload for residents may not have decreased very much in total. They just have to do it in less time. There was one time where I got three admission pages back to back to back, and then I was on my way to go see one of them, and I got pulled into another room, and he was, like, very sick, and I didn't know what was going on. I hadn't gotten any verbal pass-off on him. He was actively having chest pain, and then the EKG hadn't been done yet. The, the nurse knew scattered details. That kind of affected the way I would have wanted to treat him, and I felt like that in particular was a really hard moment to deal with because I wasn't sure exactly what was safe for the patient, how to treat him best. What time did you end up getting home? I think probably 2 o'clock in the morning that night by the time I figured that out. I just felt like everything was always so busy all the time that I could just never catch up and have like a day where I felt like things were not crazy. A second one is sort of work efficiency and work support. And most practicing physicians immediately think of the electronic health record when this comes up. And some of the days where I felt the most burnt out have been ones where I don't leave a windowless room and I'm just on the computer the whole time and I'm responding to uh, lots of minor tasks that don't seem very important in terms of the big picture of these patients' care. Third category is work-home interference or work-life balance. And this can be particularly challenging for residents because residents are typically younger at a stage where they're getting married, have young families. Coming to work in the dark, going home in the dark. My husband hadn't joined me in Boston yet. And so I'd go home to an empty apartment every day and watch old movies. Um, and the few hours I had before I had to turn around and come back. And I thought that that was probably the hardest time for me. Fourth issue is autonomy, flexibility, and control. It's like, I understand that what you're dealing with down the ED, and I work down there, but like, it turned out it was just a phone call. Just had to call the patient's PCP, find out what their baseline was, it was exactly where she was. But it, as an intern, you're sort of stuck, like, making sure all the orders are right, making sure this med rec is okay, making sure that there's a, a note to document all the stuff that's happened. And it's just like a lot of work for not a lot of gains. And then the final big driver that we look at is the values and meaning from work that residents or practicing physicians experience. You often feel caught in the middle of lots of other teams, lots of other physicians, nursing, the patient, and patient's family. And uh, a lot of times you feel like you're failing all of those people, and those are all people that you're actually really trying to impress. So in light of these five drivers, in many ways, we can all understand how residency is a setup for burnout and depression. So what do we actually know, though, about depression in residency? The general public has a depression prevalence each year between 8 and 15 percent, roughly. If you were to interview someone on a one particular day and get a one-day point prevalence, it'd be a little bit lower, around 5 percent. And that also varies depending on how you measure it. 
So the important thing is to look at the ratio between the two, and it's generally about two to four times higher among residents. And it's not universally elevated. We found that there are differences depending on which school or which hospital you're at. So there are some, some differences. But it's about 29% overall, and it ranges from about 20 to 40%, depending on how you measure it. So it's no surprise why these sort of numbers garnered so much attention when it was published. But there was pushback as well. As far as burnout specifically, not everyone so readily believes that there's quite such an epidemic. My name is Martin Samuels. I'm the chair of the Department of Neurology at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, and I am the Miriam Sidney Joseph Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School in Boston. I think if one thinks about what the experts in burnout say the causes of burnout are, and then we think about each of those causes in order, I think you'll see that there's a strange paradox in that we seem to be complaining more about burnout and suffering more of the complaints of burnout at a time where the causes of burnout are actually as few as they've ever been in history or any place else on earth. What Dr. Samuels is alluding to when he says the causes of burnout is that historically burnout affects professions when income drops, prestige decreases, or job instability increases. Dr. Samuels recently authored a blog on the subject of physician burnout where he attempts to tackle this perceived paradox. Well, I think it is an entitlement. I think that people have become entitled to what they imagine their life should be and how much people should love them and pay them for everything that they do. But the amazing thing is, you think to yourself, think how lucky I was to get into medical school. I applied, I'm being painfully honest with you now. I'm going to admit to something that probably a lot of people would admit to. I applied to something like 20 medical schools, and I got rejection after rejection after rejection. That spring, I remember going to my mailbox and opening it every day. There was another rejection. We've had a very good year this year. We couldn't take you. And uh, I began to think that I might not get into medical school. And then I opened my mailbox one day, and I had an acceptance from the University of Cincinnati. And I got one other acceptance out of my 20 or 22 rejections, including every prestigious medical school that you can think of, right? They all turned me down, including Harvard Medical School, where I'm now a professor. They turned me down. They all turned me down. But I got into the University of Cincinnati, and I went there, and they made me a doctor. They taught me to be a doctor. They gave me the MD degree. They gave me the right to practice this profession for the rest of my life, and uh, it was the luckiest thing that ever happened to me. You know, think about it. What do I have to complain about? You know, they made me a doctor. Uh, it was up to me to decide what I wanted to do with that medical degree. It's one of the most flexible degrees in all of advanced education. You can do government work. You can do private work. You can take care of the poor. You can take care of the rich. Anybody in between. You can be a surgeon. You can be an internist, a pediatrician, a psychiatrist. What's the problem? What is the problem here? And there's the computer system breaks, and there's frustration with people, and there are lawsuits occasionally, and there is fear of making error. That's all true. That's a fact. But the benefits so outweigh the risks that it's incredible that one would want to do something different. We told him his perspective is somewhat controversial. And it is funny, you know, you said that this blog that I wrote, this little essay, was controversial. I have no idea whether it is or isn't because I don't read any of the responses and I have no Twitter account or do any of those things. So I have no idea what people think. But I, I wonder, what would make you angry about it? Somebody says medicine is a good thing. Medicine is a glorious thing. I hate you for saying that. <laughs> Why? Dr. West notes that he hears pushback as well. People ask whether burnout is just a form of contagion. 
but he finds the data too compelling to dismiss. It's hard for me to ascribe such consistent rates across all levels of medical education and practice to a sort of contagion effect that isn't a result of a true epidemic. While Samuels expresses some skepticism about burnout, much of it reflecting his enduring appreciation of the profession, he's certainly not the only one who has voiced skepticism. As Colin West notes, others see the phenomenon as a generational divide or a reflection of the fact that some of us just aren't cut out to do this. And to me, I worry that even if there are a tiny percentage of truth to those concerns, what worries me about that is that it comes perilously close to a blame the victim sort of explanation or response to the issues. I think when you use validated metrics to assess the rates of these things, yes, people may be more familiar with the terms and what we're calling burnout now wasn't called burnout 20 years ago, perhaps, but maybe there were similar sorts of things out there in parts of medicine. I think that the idea that burnout and depression among medical personnel is overrated is a lot of baloney, actually. And, you know, we have hard data, as we have reviewed from the 1970s until today, that consistently show that it's increased. Uh, In addition to seeing these consistent increases, we also have data from longitudinal studies that have measured depression in individuals before and after beginning uh, medical training and residency training. And that basically shows that the Bradford Hill criteria are met. You know, the exposure precedes the outcome. And to an extent, there's a dose-response relationship between being exposed to medical training and having that outcome. Speaking to a lot of interns and reflecting on my own experience, the privilege of being a physician, especially when it's for the first time as an intern, hasn't been lost, but maybe it is being crowded out. It's funny, my wife knows me very well and uh, sort of knows what keeps me going. And so she'll often encourage me as she notices that I'm started to head towards a period of burnout. She'll encourage me to spend time with my patients because she knows that that uh, will always sort of turn things around. And so I would try to do that even with afternoon rounds, sometimes just on my own, going around and asking nurses if there was anything they needed, checking up on patients and not necessarily accomplishing anything, but helping myself feel like I was taking care of people in a more direct way than just through the computer. That small act can be what brings you back from the abyss of burnout. There was one particular patient I had on our general medical service who had come in, he was really sick in the MICU, had been there for weeks, like months almost, I think, and was with me my whole entire six weeks on GMS. And I was able on my last day to get him out back home. And I found out later his parents had sent me a thank you card in the mail. And then he actually saw me in the MICU when he was coming up to say hi to the nurses six months later and recognized me and came over to tell me um, how much he appreciated my care. And so like things like that, where, where I see people when they're feeling better, I think in some, some of that longitudinal experience, I, I thought that that was a particularly nice moment. Leah Logio is the program director for the Internal Medicine Residency Program at Cornell. So I have been a program director for 20 years in July. It'll be my 20th anniversary as a program director of an internal medicine residency program. I have actually been a little bit of the face and of some of this conversation about wellness, about burnout, and about physician suicide. It's a very fragmented system, and 
when I was an intern many years ago, why I was doing what I was doing was front and center. It was like the big sun in front of my face. It's what I could see. It's what I cared about. It's what I was committed to. And the how I did stuff was this rim around the edge, right, that I was learning how to do the logistics, but the why was front and center. And now I feel like we're on the other side of the moon, right? (laughs) The how is the big part, and the why is this tiny little rim that's been squeezed out. Dr. Loggio describes some strategies that programs have taken to combat burnout while recognizing that there's only so much any one program can do. And one of these has to do with destigmatizing burnout and mental illness. And some of the best practices that I've heard since I've been having this dialogue around the country with people is about having a revered faculty member during orientation stand up and say, yes, I had depression and I got help. Don't think any less of me because I have depression. Doesn't make me less of a doctor, less committed, less smart. And I was smart enough to get help and get treatment and I am good to go. And that's really eye-opening for new interns who have their own biases that society has labeled to some of these problems. Rachel Yang is a third-year surgery resident in general surgery at Stanford. One of the reasons I was attracted to Stanford is they have a pretty prominent program called the Balance in Life Program. And it was something that was really unique when I was interviewing around the country. Stanford was the only place that talked about burnout pretty out front when we were at the interviews. One of the most central elements of our program is we have a session, I believe it's once every six weeks, with our class independently. And then sometimes once or twice a year, there's a session with all the classes combined. Um, And we really talk about subjects around burnout and challenges we're facing, frustrations, um, and and that's a a pretty key point where we um, have dedicated two hours to kind of reconnect with our classmates, to check in with ourselves and, and see how we're all doing emotionally. Similar resident wellness efforts exist at many programs throughout the country, and their effects are being studied currently. Yes, but I think to Dr. Samuels and Logio's arguments, these programs may not address the larger problem. You mean that medicine seems to be straying from its traditional values, healing, helping, mentoring? Yeah, but I think I also mean that some of it has to come from within. The message for faculty and residents alike is to remember why you put your feet on the floor every morning and come to work. It's to take care of patients who need you. It's to be a healer and to focus on wellness to ease suffering, to help the dying have dignity. It's the best job in the world. It's the best. So if we can get back to the sentiment of why we do what we do and the joy and the meaning behind it all, we'll find our way back. It's not hard. It's actually quite simple. Maybe it's too simple, right? And the environment we live in is so complex nearly chaotic. It's so complex, right? The far extreme of complexity is chaos. And we're right on that verge, I think, in our healthcare systems. And so maybe it's so simple, our brains aren't wired to think about it too simply anymore. We're trying to make it more complicated than we should. But I personally think that's the answer. The answer is to just think about the patient in front of you, find ways to maximize your time with the patient in front of you, find ways to make the system work for you instead of it being the other way around. And remember why we do what we do. It's so, so important. 
as important as it is for all of us to connect with our patients, we also need to better recognize that for those who are struggling with burnout or depression, it may be impossible to help others get well if they are not well themselves. We want to thank the New England Journal for supporting this podcast. Kathy Stern, Debbie Molina, Mary Beth Hamill, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Karen Buckley, Steve Morrissey, and Jeffrey Drazen. And to everyone who participated in these interviews, Leah Logio, Martin Samuels, Colin West, Douglas Mata, Marco Ramos, Rachel Yang, Eric Knelson, Phoebe Mellon, Sarah Brown, and James Bradley. 